As, uh, as we prepare to hear God's word and reflect on it, let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, our creator, our savior, our hope is in you. You are the joy above all of our loves. You are the one who is radiant, who is majestic. And so we look to you now to come and light our hearts through the light of your word, through the work of your spirit who is there in the beginning making life happen. We pray that that same spirit of the risen Savior would come and heal and restore us and that he would shine upon us the light of the gospel of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are looking a little bit comfortable, so I'm going to ask you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word out of respect and honor for His Word. If you have a Bible, you can open up, up to Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible. Uh, and if not, you can just listen. Genesis 1, beginning at verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's word. Uh, it, it, the flowers of the field, they fade, uh, the grass withers, but God's word stands forever. You may be seated. So uh, I said this last week, but if, if, you know, if you are a fan of stories or film, uh, you need to know the beginning of the story. Uh, it doesn't do you any good to walk into the movie theater 30 minutes late. Uh, you'll be confused as to who the main characters are, what is happening with the plot. Same with a book. If you pick up the book and just turn right to the middle of the book, you won't have any idea about what's happening or why it's happening or where the conflict came from. In Genesis 1... Uh, the, book, the book of Genesis, but particularly Genesis 1, is all about uh, the beginning of the story. Uh, and what I said last week was you can't, it's almost impossible to turn to a book like Exodus or Ephesians or Esther or Ecclesiastes and, and figure out what's going on if you don't know the beginning of the story. So it's important as followers of Jesus to know the beginning of the story. If you're going to know anything that happens later in the story, you need to know the beginning. But Genesis, more than just serving as the beginning of the, of the Bible, uh, it also shows us what the foundations of all of reality are like, where they came from, uh, where you came from, what are your origins, uh, where did you come from, who made you. All of those things are of, of huge significance, not just for your life, your sort of everyday life, but for for culture, for civilization, for society to function well, we need to know uh, what this all means, where it came from, where and where, and I think even more importantly, where it's going. Uh, so Genesis gives us, I think, the origins, where you came from, but it also uh, tells you where you're headed. It shows you your destiny because, uh, like a lot of good stories that you might be familiar with, a good author, a good director in a film will oftentimes hide clues in the beginning of the story that won't that won't resurface or won't make sense until the very end of the story. And I think that's exactly what the author of the Bible has done. Uh, he's put clues, he's put little sneak peeks into the beginning of the story that show us what the end of the story is like. Uh, so this morning, uh, what I want to do is 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 very briefly uh, look at uh, Genesis one. And as Carl said, I've, you know, I've got 30 minutes. I don't know if that'll be enough to cover my 18 points, um, but we'll, we'll, take it, we'll take a stab at it. Um, I've, I've just got three points this morning. They all, they all start with D, they all alliterate. Um, and so um, you know, I figured it was time to put my, my, Presbyterian, uh, my Presbyterian skills to work. So we've got three points. They all start with the letter D. Let's, let's, let's get after it this morning. So first we're gonna look at the design 
the design of Genesis 1, and then we'll look at uh, the dominion in Genesis 1, the dominion, and then, and then third, we'll look at the dad in Genesis 1. So the design, the dominion, and then the dad in Genesis 1. So as I said last week, Genesis 1, we all, for a variety of different reasons, uh, come to a, a story or a passage like Genesis 1 with certain curiosities and interests, uh, you know, uh, historically, scientifically about Genesis 1. But Genesis 1, the, the fundamental point, the ultimate point, what Genesis 1 is designed to do is it's designed to show you who God is and what he's like and what he does uh, and what he did. Uh, to create the world. And last week we were looking at the idea that God is, Genesis 1 portrays him, it reveals him as this sovereign architect. Now he's this divine artist in Genesis 1 who is, who is putting together this perfect world and just by the breath of his mouth, just by the power of his voice, uh, all things came into being. And if you were here last week, you remember that in Genesis 1, in the very beginning, God creates everything, but the earth as he created it, had, it was sort of formless and void. Uh, the, the second verse of Genesis 1 talks about sort of this chaotic, unstructured, disordered darkness that existed in the earth. And we're not, there's some mystery there, but uh, there, was, there was disorder and chaos. But out of that... Out of that chaos, out of that unstructured, deep darkness, um, lifeless and empty, God filled up the earth and he and he formed it and he and he and he structured it. Uh, he, out of that formlessness and void and emptiness and chaos, he ordered a kingdom uh, of life. He filled it with with beings and creatures. And it's taken me a number of years. I you know I grew up in the church and I read Genesis one countless times, but. There's a certain there's a certain order and flow uh, to Genesis one that I didn't necessarily catch uh, when I was a little kid, and I wonder if you heard it this morning. But there's kind of a there's a really rhythmic quality. There's kind of a sing songness to Genesis one. There's a lot of repetition. Um, God said, and it happened. Uh, there was evening and there was morning. That's repeated over and over again. God said it was good. Uh, he created creatures and and task them to fill the earth and uh, and reproduce according to their kind and that's it's repetitive it has kind of a poetic uh, quality to it but what ha what's happening if you could step back and see the overall structure is uh, if you look at your Bibles you can see that there's kind of an ordering where God creates these these kingdoms in Genesis 1 these sort of realms of his kingdom and then on the subsequent days he 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 creates rulers and sort of things to fill those realms in his kingdom. So if you look at day one, two, and three, you see that in day one, God creates light and darkness. He creates this realm of light and darkness. Uh, and then in day four, he creates beings. He creates creatures, the sun and the moon and the stars, to, in a sense, rule over the, that realm of light and darkness, the sun and the moon. And you see that it, each day sort of corresponds, each realm that he creates corresponds with a particular ruler. So in day two, he creates the water in the sky. What does he do in day five? He creates the, the ruler of the fish and the birds who fill and, and team that realm 
uh, with their life according to their kinds. And then in, in day three, he creates the land. He creates the dry land. And then in day six, he creates the land animals and human beings, uh, which we'll look at in a moment. But there's an ordering there, right? You see that that structure. Days one through three, he's creating the realms, the kingdoms in this great cosmic kingdom. And then days four through six, he's cre- he's creating and tasking the rulers to govern those things, to fill those things, to subdue those things, uh, all to his glory. Now we could talk about um, you, you could talk about all of you know. There's so many implications to that. Uh, but what's happening here, I think, and what maybe is a takeaway, is um, that everything that you see, everything that we experience, all of the realms that we experience, whether it's outer space, whether it's a you know, whether it's a trip down to the beach, whether it's camping out in the Sierras, um, all of that is designed to speak about how beautiful and majestic and glorious God is. Uh, theologians call that general revelation. There's there's two ways that God reveals himself. One is with special revelation. It's the word of God where he, 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 he very precisely and... Uh, and very openly talks about who he is and what he's done. But there's also general revelation, which also reveals who God is. Uh, Theologians used to talk about two books. There's the book of the Bible, which reveals who God is, but then there's the book of nature that also reveals who God is. And in Genesis 1, what you see is that God has perfectly orchestrated and designed a world that should lead to abundant, joyful, loving cooperative life, life together. Um, You could say that Genesis 1 gives us an indication that this world, as God created it, was sort of set out as sort of a cosmic welcome mat to all of his creation. Everything that exists is perfectly orchestrated and dialed in so that life could flourish. And we'll, we'll maybe, we'll talk about in a couple minutes about why there's certain things in the world that don't uh, operate according to that design. But if you could think about this universe as kind of God's, Genesis 1 is God's cosmic welcome map. Uh, there are a number of scientists, um, well-renowned scientists, award-winning scientists, prize-winning scientists, who have looked at the world, who have looked at um, you know the stars and looked at the galaxies and looked at the just the way that uh, even cell cells and sort of little microscopic organisms are put together. Um, numbers of scientists for hundreds of years have looked at those things and have said there's a number of these constants in the world. Uh, the gravitational constant, the speed of light, uh, strong and nuclear, uh, strong and weak nuclear forces that have these precise values that this world seems precisely orchestrated and designed for life to exist. And if and if even one of those dials or one of those sort of constants was off by just a little bit, uh, you know, one part in a million million, uh, life as we know it could not exist. It could like planets could not exist. People, plants, none of those things could exist. And so a number of scientists and theologians have looked at the world and said it seemed it seems like this universe was like fine-tuned to allow us to flourish and exist. And um, that's a powerful argument, I think, to the reality that there's a personal God, a creator God who made all of this. And there are some 
there there are some uh, scientists and, and, and some thinkers um, who, as a rebuttal to that, say, you know, well, what if what if perchance that this universe that we live in is actually just one of like an, uh, an infinite number of, of multiverses that exist, and so we just happen to be in the in the universe that's fine tuned to to allow life to happen. Maybe you've heard this from. Uh, reading or on the internet or blogs or maybe even a, a co-worker or friend. Um, and so there's this argument sort of, well, maybe there's this multiverse that we're just happen to be in the one that allows life to exist. And I heard an argument recently that, that when it went like this, it sort of said, think about that for a moment. Imagine playing uh, a game of poker with your friends. I don't know if you guys are poker players. I occasionally play here and there. But imagine playing poker, uh, you know, out in the, in the Wild West at some point, and you, uh, you just happen in this game of poker to deal yourself uh, 20, 20 uh, hands of, of, of four aces. Uh, and, and 20 hands in a row, you get four aces. And uh, your opponents, as they're beginning to reach for their six shooters uh, and call you on, uh, on your cheat, uh, you, you probably say, oh, hey, hold up, guys. What if we just happen to live in a particular universe among an infinite number of universes in which I exist and deal myself uh, 20 perfect hands all in a row. Um, you can imagine how playing a game of friends, that might not really convince them. It would be an, uh, it would sort of be an unreasonable conclusion uh, to arrive at. And I think what Genesis and the world that you see uh, leads you to believe if you take it on on sort of face value is that this world was designed for life to exist and that had to be designed by someone someone that was infinitely wise infinitely powerful and Genesis 1 says that that's God and so the question is if you step back for a moment as you're vacationing this summer or you're out and about, are you listening to that song, that poem in Genesis 1 that continues to reverberate even to this, to this day? Are you, listen, are you able to hear uh, what one author calls the song of the stars, the song of the trees, the song of the flowers of the field, the song of the birds of the air, and what they are saying about their creator? Are you able to hear that? Genesis 1 invites us to, again, tune our ears to the song that's been going on for thousands of years in honor and joy and praise of the Creator. That's the design of Genesis 1. Um, but you notice, you notice at, the, at, the, sort of at the very end of the passage, God says over and over again, you know, he makes these creatures and he, he, he tasks them to reproduce according to their kind have plants reproduce according to their kind birds according to their kind but then in right right in verse 26 you have this it's almost like a pause and the the tone begins to shift it's almost as if the song of creation is now beginning to crescendo to its climax and god says to himself let us reproduce according to our kind. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. 
And this gets at the reality of who you are, what the Bible's fundamental teaching about who you are is. And you've, I'm sure, heard a lot of, um, uh, of people in our culture talk about the, the, the importance of self-image and self-esteem and how you think about yourself and how you view yourself and how important that is uh, to just functioning in the world, functioning in your daily life. And the Bible's teaching is that you and I are made in the image of God, that we are, as it were, the crown jewel of all of God's creation, that we are, in fact, his royal representatives in, in the entire cosmos. We are the crown jewel of everything that he has made. Think about that for a moment. What does an image, what does an image do? Um, this past year, and even maybe a little bit before that, uh, you probably saw, as I did, you know, uh, not to get political, but a number of instances on the news in which uh, people would rally and gather around statues, around images of people throughout history, and and tear those images down. Why were they doing that? Whether you think it was right or wrong, or uh, they were doing that because that image represented something. Uh, it stood for something whether it was true, perceived that way or true or not, uh, that image represented something. And so defacing that image, tearing that image down was a statement saying, we don't want to stand for this. We're not about this. We, we're about something else. Well, God placed his image uh, in the Garden of Eden and has placed his image throughout the world. Uh, and, and that image represents something about who God is. See, ancient Near Eastern kings uh, in, in, in empires like the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, uh, the Hittite Empire, they would, oftentimes kings in those empires, would have images carved of themselves and they would place those in remote territories or sort of on the bounds of their, of their realm. And it was a way of indicating to all the people or to uh, people outside their realm that this was the place that you know, this king governed. Um, it's, this is a territory that belongs to this king. It was a way of saying, I rule this. You know, I, Nebuchadnezzar, rule this area. And what God does in Genesis 1 is he creates his own image. And he places it in the world as if to say, I rule this. This is where I have dominion. This is where I rule and reign. But it's not just a sort of a, a sort of. It's not a statue. It's not a sort of a, a, a an image that doesn't do anything. He actually calls creatures into. He calls you and me into existence, and he tasks us with actively subduing and ruling the world. And more than that, see, the ancient Near East would have said that. Uh, those kings alone, those emperors alone, were the image of God. Genesis 1 says, all people, all men and women, all boys and girls are the image of God. You are the crown jewel of God's creation, of God's good world. And the reality is, if you look back through the course of history, of the course of civilization, uh, what you will discover is that our whole society, our whole culture is built on that fundamental truth from Genesis 1. Western civilization as we know it was established on this truth that people matter, 
that people have inherent dignity and value, that there's no one who's less than, uh, there's not a king who's more important than uh, the people that he or she reigns over, right? It's, it's all of, all people matter. All people have dignity and worth. As C.S. Lewis said in that great sermon, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You've, not, you've never met a mere mortal. So what does that mean? It means a couple things. God has established you as his royal representative. He's given you a task. And look what that task is. Uh, God says to Adam and Eve, he says to uh, the first human beings, he says to all humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So your ministry, what you're tasked to do is to rule and subdue. And there's a there's hundreds of ways that I think God has gifted people like you and me to do that. He's he said you can rule and subdue by being in relationship with other people. Uh, that part of what it means to be the image of God is to be in relationship with other people. Uh, certainly that means friendship. It means marriage. It means uh, having and raising kids. It means uh, going to the office. It means studying the world. It means uh, protecting people as a first responder. It means uh, it means creating music and art and technology that brings this whole world into subjection ultimately to God. And so you should, friends, feel the smile of God as you work on your marriage, as you raise and bring up kids to know and love Jesus, uh, as you work in the office, as you work in your neighborhoods or in your community, you should feel the smile of God that he has tasked you with subduing and ruling the world underneath him. You are the crown jewel of creation. Uh, summer is a time when we go, you know, all of us go, we travel, we see sights. You go to places like the Grand Canyon and you look at and you see the majesty of, of a space like the Grand Canyon. You look, you go up to the redwoods and you see just these trees that are enormous that have existed for thousands of years. Uh, you go down to the beach uh, you see the crashing waves. And what Genesis 1 is saying is all of that is, is nothing compared to the man, the woman, the boy, and the girl that you're sitting next to at this moment. That you pass by in the grocery store. Um, that you get angry at uh, in the traffic. Um, all, of, all, of, all of those things... All of those people are the crown jewel of God's good world. And we should treat them as such. I came across this story uh, just this week. It's a little bit of an old story, but um, it's about a man named um, Chris Gabbard. And he, was, he is a professor of English at the University of, uh, of North Florida. And he had bought into the idea or sort of accepted the idea of uh, of, of some philosophers and thinkers uh, in the world, guys like Peter Singer, if you know that name, who uh, teaches at Princeton and um, has sort of uh, advocated the idea that um, that man, that men and women have certain rights and responsibilities based on their capacities, 
uh, their capacity to reason, to think, to make moral judgments. And so if, 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 there's, a, a, if there's a human being or a, a, a person that doesn't have those capacities and those abilities, they have no rights. They have no rights to life, to exist, to be loved. And uh, Professor Gabbard, Chris Gabbard, um, had sort of bought into that idea that you know people like like children or or the uh, the mentally impaired uh, sh- sh- they don't have any inherent rights in themselves because they lack the capacities um, and he had this idea and that is until he his wife uh, in 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 her pregnancy and in the delivery of of one of their children had incredibly incredibly uh, intense complications and uh, their son August was born. Uh, with cerebral palsy, he was born a, a quadriplegic. He was born blind, um, and th- he wrote an essay, Professor Gabbard, in which he's reflecting on on the beauty of his own son, uh, a, a, a son who many thinkers today would say had no rights to life, uh, should cost too much, and should just be uh, should just be killed. And he's he's writing about his reflections on his son. He 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 had the, he had these views prior to his son's birth. And he says, after his birth, after his son's birth, as I entered the intensive care nursery, I was deeply ambivalent, having been persuaded by the Princeton philosopher Peter Singer's advocacy of expanding reproductive choice to include in, infanticide. But there was my son, asleep or unconscious, on a ventilator motionless under a heat lamp, tubes and wires everywhere, monitors alongside his steel and transparent plastic crib. And what most stirred me was the way he resembled me. Nothing had prepared me for this, the shock of recognition, for he was the boy in my own baby pictures, the image of me when I was an infant. That's, that's an incredible statement of somebody who'd said, faced with the reality of my own son, of my own daughter, and the way that they resembled me, the way they imaged me, I couldn't help but delight over them. Uh, think of them as, as beautiful. Think of them as part of my own self. See, Genesis 1, what it does is it shows us the design that God made for all the world. It shows us the task of humanity that you and I were given dominion over all things to rule them, rule them in subjection to God. But lastly, and I think most importantly, is it shows us the Father. It shows us a good dad. See, Genesis one twenty six is set off from the rest of the chapter. Uh, nowhere else in Genesis 1 does God say, let us, let us make... Uh, in our image, anything else. That's only true of humanity. And then in Genesis 2, uh, God, in a very intimate, personal way, gets involved with the the creation of human beings. And then in Genesis 5, you read the first genealogy in the book of Genesis, and it said that Adam, uh, the first man, begat his son, uh, Seth. Uh, And in the same way, it says that God begat Adam. That God produced, he reproduced, he made sons and daughters after his likeness. He made children. That's what's going on in Genesis chapter 1. God is making a family. He's making children. 
And I wonder, uh, those of you who are dads uh, or those of you who are moms, have you ever had that, that experience of, of going and seeing your children? Maybe it's when they're sleeping or, or playing or, or sort of engaged in some activity and you're, you're watching them maybe up close or from a distance and you just for a moment, sort of the beauty of that child just sort of hits you afresh and you delight in them. You rejoice over them. They fill your heart with like an immense amount of joy and beauty and they just move you. And what's happening in Genesis 1 is God is saying, that's the God that I'm like. I'm creating a family. I'm creating sons and daughters and he's marveling at their beauty. Marveling at the joy that he that they bring him. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that that's what God does over and over again. And the question is, what do his children do? What do his sons and daughters do? Over and over again, they run away. Uh, That happens in Genesis 3, and it happens over and over again in the lives of God's children, in the hearts of you and me. We run away from God. God sets out a perfect world for humanity to live in. He gives them everything that they need. He gives them this monumental task to rule alongside him. And instead, they don't thank him. Uh, they don't return his love. Imagine for a moment if you've, if you've invested your entire life into raising a child, uh, into giving that child everything that they needed to succeed, to be fruitful, uh, to go to the college of their choice to pursue their dreams and that child never says thank you never says I love you that's what humanity that's what we have done to God we've snubbed him we've ignored him we've ran away from him and yet at the very end of the book at the very end of the book God gives he gives another image he created men and women in his image and the apostle Paul in the New Testament as he's reflecting on Genesis 1, he's talking about, in the book of Colossians, light and darkness. He's talking about the gospel going out and bearing fruit and growing, just like Genesis 1. He says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. That He's the eternal Son. He's the one who took on flesh. He's the one who was the delight of his father, the joy of his father from all eternity. And that Jesus, that image of the invisible God, came to live, came to die, came to be raised again, came to live a perfect life, came to reclaim the lost sons and daughters of God, and came to restore us. Paul says that in Jesus was the, all the fullness of God, and God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile heaven and earth and all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul says in Colossians 1 that you were alienated from God, that you ran away from God, that you were hostile to God, and yet Jesus, the image of the invisible God, came to reclaim you came to make you holy and blameless and above reproach. That's the image that you have now, that you're adopted back into God's family. And if you could think about that for a moment, how would your life change? How would this week change? How would your view of yourself and others change if you knew 
that you were made in the image of God, and yet even though you are ruined by sin, corrupted by sin, broken by sin, that Jesus, the image of the invisible God, has restored you, has made you blameless, has made you above reproach. That's the opinion of you that matters. That's the voice that speaks over your life, over your heart. That's who you fundamentally are. You are adopted back into God's family. You're his son. You're his daughter. Uh, you can go in that joy. You can go with the delight of the creator of the world over you today and the rest of your life. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we see in the, in the pages of your story a God of infinite beauty, of wisdom, of holiness, of goodness, of truth. We see you making, designing, creating a good world. And yet, because of our rebellion, we have, we've ruined that. We've marred that. And yet, you and your goodness and faithfulness and loving kindness has sent us Jesus. A new Adam, the final Adam, the last Adam, the one who has restored all things and will bring all things to completion one day. We thank you that because of him we are above reproach. That who we fundamentally are are not what we think about ourselves, not what others say about us, but what you have spoken over us in your son Jesus. That we are holy, blameless, and above reproach. Father, that's the good news. Would you push us into our hearts? Would you press it into our lives? Uh, that we would be able to rejoice and give thanks this day for all that you have done for us in this in this Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.